The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight, an executive-level Wright-Patterson Air Force Base employee takes you on a dangerous personal search for evidence of alien visitation inside the legendary, super-secret Department of Defense installation and beyond. He researched many Department of Defense scientific mysteries in his distinguished career. Now armed with insider information, he's researching the most polarizing scientific mystery of the century. Do we have aliens? During his life changing journeys he discovered and examined evidence of alien visitation and strong hints that contrary to widely published reports Air Force senior scientists may not be unanimously laughing at the thought of UFOs after all greetings I'm your host Mel Fambergas at Veritas Radio if you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. I always love to hear from you. Tonight's special guest is Raymond Shemansky, whose Department of Defense civil service career spanned five decades at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base from 1973 until 2011, when he retired as a senior electronics engineer While on a two-year executive loan to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base commander, he served as the director of the installation's civilian wellness program, managing activities and scientific studies, supporting 10,000 base civilian employees. As chairman of the ADA Joint Program Office Evaluation and Validation Team, he managed software developments critical to the national defense. He is also an author, and tonight we'll be discussing his his story and his book, titled 50 Shades of Grays, Evidence of Extraterrestrial Visitation to Wright-Patterson and Beyond. Raymond Shemansky joins us directly from, I haven't asked him, so he'll tell us. Hello, Ray, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hey, nice to be on your show. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Where are you, by the way? Dayton, Ohio. That's what I thought. Very close to Wright-Pat, right? I live five minutes away. Okay. Now, Raymond, let's go with your story. How did you get your job, first of all, at RIPAT? Well, I went to the University of Dayton for my undergraduate degree, and they had a very robust program, a cooperative education program with Wright-Patterson. So about um, every year, they would send four to six young engineers, usually sophomore year, up to Wright-Patterson on a work-study program. You would... uh, work for three months, come back to school for three months, work for three months. And you would do that for a total of 12 months of work study on the base. So it was through the university that all that occurred. In your first week, that's very interesting. You met somebody called Al, right? Absolutely. What happened? Well, all the co-op students are assigned a mentor. 
And that can mean various things, anywhere from showing you where the cafeteria is to what parking spaces you can park in, what the hours of the gymnasium are. They're basically, um, you know, your experienced eyes and ears to try to get you sure. through, you know, the difficult times. So I was assigned uh, in, in an office, and there was a gentleman there that I can only refer to as Corvette Al. And later on, we can get into why he has that name and why I'm only allowed to call him by his first name. So first week, Al says, hey, come on, we're going to go to the other side of the building. And there we're going to go to this place he called the Greasy Spoon. It was the little coffee shop. The building that we were in, it was basically three different sections. On each end was a large two-story building. And in the middle was a hangar, an actual airplane hangar that was about mm, 200 feet wide. So at this time in January of 1973, it's dark, uh, it's empty, it's filled with spiders. And we had to come from our building through that building to get to the, to the cafeteria. And we just come down the short little ramp and he turns to me and says, have you heard about our aliens? So I'm a co-op student. I'm a sophomore in college, you know, probably about 20 years old. I have no idea what he's talking about. And he says, well, we have these aliens. And I said, aliens? He said, yeah, there was a crash in 1947. And they brought the wreckage and the aliens here to Wright-Patterson for examination and possible exploitation. To which I replied, well, we have these aliens. How do you know about them? He said, well, it's a secret. And I said, well, if it's a secret, how do you know about it? And then he told me, well, it's a widely known secret. Everybody on the base knows that Wright Patterson has this relationship between the Roswell crash wreckage, uh, Project Blue Book was there, and that type of thing. So it was known throughout the entire campus. And that was in January of 1973. At that time, were you into science fiction, were you into UFOs, or did this ignite your interest? Uh, I think at that time, I was really into my studies. I had a lovely girlfriend at the time, and I kind of took up all of my time. And that stuck with me, though, because right after that happened, and I started to make friends as the days, weeks, and months went on. And so I'd ask Doug in accounting, I'd go, hey, you know, I heard this about we had aliens on the base. And everyone would go, yeah, that's right. And I was like... This can't be. There's got to be. It's got to be a fraternity thing they're pulling on me here. But as I would ask people, some of them were more knowledgeable than others, and they would say things like, "Well, you've heard of Project Blue Book," and of course I hadn't. And they would go on to explain that. And then of course it was always, "Well, where do you keep the aliens?" Well, of course we keep them in the tunnels. We have tunnels? Oh, yeah, we've got tunnels, and they keep the aliens there. Well, can we go see these aliens in the tunnels? Well, no, only selected people are allowed to see the aliens in the tunnels. I never really got anybody to look at me, especially in the early years, like I was crazy, because if you think about it, Blue Book had only closed four years prior. They closed in 1969. So the fact that Blue Book was at Wright-Patterson and it was a really big deal and it was always, you know, in the local on-base newspaper, it was a very well-known secret that there was that connection. 
Now, a lot of us who have worked in the corporate world, usually when you have somebody training you the first couple of days, they pull some pranks on you, depending on where you work. Could this have been somebody saying, hey, aliens, tunnels, underground levels? Did you confirm this on your own later that this is actually a reality? I personally did not. And I don't think that anybody that I ever came across could personally do that. I mean, if you think about it, the crash was in 1947. By the time I showed up on the base in 1973, they had almost 30 years to hide this stuff. So if, in fact, I had stumbled across it and I was able to verify probably the greatest secret ever, I would have to declare the U.S. Air Force the worst ever participants in the game of hide-and-seek <laughs> in human history <laughs> with a 30-year head start. So, no, unfortunately, um, there was really no way that I could confirm that we had aliens in the tunnels. But would it, safe, would it be safe to say, of course, there's that infamous Area 51, too, but for 30-some years after Roswell, would it be safe to say that more crash retrievals occurred and perhaps traffic towards Wright Pat happened for 30 years of perhaps some other craft that were retrieved? Well, let's take a pause and think about Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, because if we put this in context, and I give you a good description that I think everybody out there listening will understand why Wright-Patterson not only was an ideal place in 1947, but to this day remains an ideal place to bring unknown things for examination. It is the home of Air Force Research Labs. And we have multiple directorates. You have materials directorates and human performance, and you have sensors and flight dynamics. So there are s several directorates there, each with specific skills, um, equipment, missions. But in 1947, let's start there. In 1947, the materials directorate would have been at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base for 30 years because in 1917, the original materials directorate was founded. And last year, which was 2017, they celebrated 100 years at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So assume that we pick up something unknown in a desert field 70 miles north of Roswell. And it's this aluminum kind of shiny thing that has weird properties. You can't cut it. You can't smash it. You can't rip it. You can't set it on fire. You crumble it, and it goes back to its original shape. So if there was any place in the world, not even counting the U.S., but any place in the world that you'd want to take this for examination and figure out what is this stuff, you would have taken it to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base because it was then and is now a world-class center, especially in materials. So fast forward to 1947, they would have – had even more experience doing these types of things. So again, we pick something up, we want to know what it is, and now fast forward to 2017, I'm sure they have all kinds of machines that you need to do analysis, elemental analysis, the EDX machines, ICPMS machines. That not only goes for materials, but all other areas of science as they relate to airborne vehicles. 
So if you pick something up out of the desert, whether it's it's a part of a Russian satellite or it's some you know UFO from another galaxy, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base has the technical expertise, the equipment, the money, the security oaths, the facilities. They have everything you could possibly need to examine something that you don't know what it is. Since we're talking about Roswell, what's your opinion that – since 1947, we really, the public, didn't hear any more other than that announcement, uh, you know, July 7th, 1947, a crash, blah, 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 blah. You, you know what I'm talking about yeah. from the radio. But we hardly ever heard anything until 1978, until Stanton Friedman came out with information. That's correct. That's when um, he was given Jesse Marcel, Major Jesse Marcel's name. And Mar Marcel had seen something in the popular press about UFOs, and he mistakenly thought that the veil of secrecy that he was placed under in 1947 had been lifted. Well, it, that wasn't the case, but that was his impression. So when Stanton confronted him about it, Marcel thought, well, it's been 30 years, nearly 30 years, and certainly the secrecy lid has been lifted. And so he told everything to Stanton Friedman, who then, of course, became famous by telling the rest of the world what Jesse Marcel told him. Exactly. But I just found it interesting that for so many decades, they had time to change the story. Because, you know, first it was crash test dummies and weather balloons. They kept, it kept morphing. So it makes you wonder how much of the story that we know now is what really happened. Well, I think there's some immutable facts here. The first is that on the record, Major Jesse Marcel, he said a couple of things. And the first links Wright-Patterson Air Force Base to the crash wreckage. He said, whatever it was that we picked up out of the desert, one, was not of this earth, and two, it went to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So he's the guy on the military side for the government who first touched the stuff because he was one of two intelligence officers who were sent out there by his, his uh, base commander to go look at the material on the Foster Ranch. Then you have the guy uh, who was the uh, deputy for the 8th Army Air Force when Jesse Marcel flew the stuff from Roswell to Fort Worth. And that general, General DuBose, he went on record. He signed an affidavit that said, the material was flowing on, and he mentioned some general who was head of SAC at the time. It was flowing on his personal airplane to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So the man who first handled the material said it went to Wright-Patterson. And then the guy who was chief of staff for the 8th Army Air Corps during the period when Marcel brought the material from Roswell signed the affidavit. So an immutable fact is whatever it was, went to Wright-Patterson for evaluation. Do you think the change of story could have been developed not for the public, but perhaps for the Soviets? You mean the uh, saucer story? Correct. Well, I think there's a number of really good reasons. I'm not defending the decision, but I think there's a number of really good reasons why that decision was made. First of all, if you think about the communications back then, they had telephones, uh, U.S. surface mail, and telegraph. Now, that's, that's pretty much it, teletypes. The world descends upon 
the Department of Defense at the time, 1947, and says, we really want to know what the stuff is that you have. So it shuts down all the communication channels, and then it keeps the, the fighting forces from doing what they're supposed to be doing, fighting. Instead, they're doing paper chases, you know, trying to, to get information out. And they finally said after one day, this is insane. We're not going to do this. So the first reason is operationally, they were being shut down trying to answer everybody's questions. The next thing is it probably hit them. Duh, this stuff could be exploited into something that's going to win the next world war. We need to shut our traps about this. Exactly. And, you're, and, and you're right. Whoever they considered the enemy, they certainly didn't want them to know about this. But in essence, that first part, we have a, a, a crash saucer. Boom. The Soviets think, oh, my goodness, these people are going to back engineer whatever they have. And God forbid we get into war with them in the future. And then they change the story. But the Soviets already got caught wind that we may have truly an extraterrestrial craft. Right, because it was published not only in the Roswell Daily Record, but it went across the country and across the world. You know, there was you know, calls coming in from, from all over Europe about this. So certainly uh, the Russians got wind of it you know, within the first 24 to 48 hours of its announcement. So in all your years there, decades working at Wright Pat, and of course, every department is compartmentalized, there are silos, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. What is the most that you can discuss without violating any oaths? I'm really not sure what the question is. <laughs> <laughs> well, Re -re relevant, relevant to what, my work or relevant to the work that's being done out there? or Both, both. I really um, – I try to intentionally limit the amount of highly classified work that I did, um, and I did so by finding good projects and staying with them a very long time. That's not to say that I didn't work on that type of thing that I can't talk about, uh, but I wasn't in a department – Uh, or departments where I, I regularly fed on, on that kind of activity. So, uh, but I can tell you that, you know, if you think of Wright-Patterson, they work at things at the, at the very highest levels. There's no, there's absolutely no doubt about that. So, uh, you know, there's 25,000 people out there, maybe 12,000 civilians, 13,000 military personnel, and that can fluctuate up to maybe 30,000 plus contractors. So we shouldn't be surprised that top secret work is being done there on all different types of, of technology, that we have vaults that lead the tunnels and tunnels that leave the vaults. I know people, oh, they've got tunnels. And, you know, they go on the speaking circuit talking about right pad has tunnels. You know, if you're on the inside, you're going, that's just goes with the territory. So um, why wouldn't they? Why? That's right. Why wouldn't they? You know, you've got to keep things safe and uh, secret, so you've got to protect them, and there's various ways of protecting what you have. So no one should be surprised that, that Wright-Pat does this kind of work, and that's, that's not exclusive. I'm sure all over the country, you know, all the major in installations have that type of work going on. No one should be surprised if you – well, you wouldn't tell me this, but if there's several levels below – you know, the, 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 uh, the first floor, did you ever go down? Well, I think the furthest I ever went down was like 
two basements and nothing sexy. <laughs> but you don't you don't really need to to put much underground, quite frankly. You know, you can have you know you can have containers that are protected and they're on the first floor and nothing gets in and nothing gets out unless you want it to. One thing I could never understand is that there's the speculation, of course, that there are plenty of bases that have underground facilities. But if we have so many mountain ranges in the United States, wouldn't it be better to just do drill through the, just like Cheyenne Mountain right. that way? Yeah, of course. But the point I'm trying to make is... Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it because you don't want to believe. You want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.